Hey, everybody, this is John Forsland. You're listening to On the Board Sports. You can it on the board. Yes. And welcome back to another edition of the On the Board Sports podcast. I am your host, William Trucci, a.k.a. Will C., coming to you from Long Island, New York. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Sean Thomas, a.k.a. Shawnee on the mic. Sean, how are you? Well, happy Tempo Tuesday. I'm doing well. How are you doing, pal? Hanging in. Can't complain. We got the jerseys in the background right now, and that only means one thing. We have a very special guest with us. Joining us is the author of My Life, Michael Jordan, and Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, is the one and only Roland Lazenby. Roland, thank you for coming on and thank you for sacrificing some time with us. How are you? I'm great. And thank you guys for uh, spending some time with me. Absolutely, Roland. Absolutely. I know you've been a busy guy. You've been doing probably a crazy amount of interviews right now, especially I, with this not bad. I, You know, I make a living interviewing people. Right. So uh, it would be hypocritical of me not to grant interviews. Uh, you know, we all got to talk to each other. That's just the way it is. All right. Absolutely. And you wrote a book called The Aforementioned Michael Jordan, My Life. Roland, we saw the 30 for 30 documentary come out, this 10-part series. Really amazing. But your book is just, it, it's a great book. Thank Tell you. the people, you're welcome. Tell the people about how you got into writing about Michael Jordan. And I know that you also wrote a book too about Jerry West and about Kobe Bryant as well. So the floor is all yours and how you wrote these books. Uh, you know, um, that's kind of complicated, man. Uh, I, um, I was a high school wrestling coach, a varsity, co varsity head coach at 24 years old. And I got diagnosed with a brain aneurysm. I was in the hospital 10 days. They said, looked like uh, I had a 30% chance of dying in the next 24 hours. Well, that didn't happen, but it led me, uh, first thing I did, they decided they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And so they just released me. And so I went home and ran five miles. I was in great shape back in those days. And I, I set out to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided I wanted to be a writer. And so I um, eventually became a sports editor at a local weekly paper uh, at 27. And I did that for about four months and then I got hired at a daily. And then I got hired at a bigger daily. And while I was there, my old man was a basketball nut. I'd played a little bit of college football and I love pickup basketball, but, you know, I hadn't played basketball on a team since eighth grade. And, but he got sick and died. And I suddenly began playing pickup all the time because it made me feel close to him. And then I uh, was working as a police reporter covering crime. And I was the night police reporter. And uh, then I started grad school while working full time in writing. And the writing professor said, if you're going to be a writer, 
you ought to write a book. And so I started uh, a basketball book. Uh, it did real well. I got it uh, finished and um, that led to a uh, short time later, Georgetown University coach John Thompson had read the book I wrote and they hired me to write their national championship book in 1984. And I, I left the newspaper because I made more money in the eight weeks writing that book than I made in a whole year working at the newspaper a good bit more. And so it just became me doing writing contracts. And uh, I later began teaching a little college, but uh, I was doing mostly college basketball and we had, uh, I was doing uh, CBS broadcaster, Billy Packer was a big time guy broadcasting back then. I did a couple of books with him and one of those we did was a good hit. It was a history of the final four. And they wanted me to move the NBA. So uh, they had me doing uh, these team book projects with the Celtics, the Lakers, and the Pistons, which was, this was uh, late 80s. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized there wasn't a history of the NBA finals. So the publisher proposed a history of the NBA finals to the NBA. And so I was the writer for the official history of the NBA finals. This was 89.90, but that meant I got to interview all, I mean, all the way back, everybody who'd played in the championship series, the coaches, team owners, all the people. And uh, one thing just began to lead to another. And um, in 1993, the Chicago Tribune book division, I've written more than 70 books and contrib some contributed, but and I, I've written a lot of different books. These large books, like the Jordan book and the Kobe book, that's the Jordan book, 700 pages. I haven't written 70 books like that. Uh, a lot of smaller books and different projects. But in recent years, I've done the bigger projects. But back in 93, the Chicago Tribune Book Division hired me to do a history of the Bulls. And I went in, and Mike had just left the team. And I was doing all these interviews with people. I ended up doing a succession of books on the Bulls because of that, which led through all their, their second three peats, the return of MJ. And then this book here, I was there, the Last Dance documentary. This is a book called Blood on the Horns. And I, I, I spent that season with the Bulls and interviewed everybody about why the team was breaking up. And I was real close with Tex Winter, the assistant coach by then. And he sort of guided me along because he was the glue man stuck in the middle of all these people fighting. And he would sort of give me ideas on how to approach people with questions and stuff. And it ended up being um, a very successful book that launched me down the road to doing all kinds of other things. Like, after that book, I did a book on Kobe called Mad Game, the NBA education of Kobe Bryant. I spent a lot of time with him. It was while he was a young guy in the NBA, but during his miserable time. Um, and so I just write a lot. <laughs> and I've interviewed, I've, we've been going through, I've been doing this 35 years now. I've got hundreds and hundreds of interview tapes cassette tapes that I did 
with people around the NBA for years. We're now digitizing all of them because I'm writing a biography of Magic Johnson and his life. And uh, I write large cultural books. It's not just basketball. These are black power stories a lot of times. It's not the black power of protest and politics. It's really the black power of generations of black families who, well, we, we know our racial history somewhat, but so much uh, of this involved the whole really um, crooked uh, business of sharecropping and, and um, it's the story, these great competitors I write about don't happen in a vacuum. They are the product of uh, their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents, people who had to endure a lot of stuff. And um, for example, the Michael book, uh, one of the main people is Dawson Jordan, his great grandfather, who was five, five and handicapped. He was crippled, but he was a really uh, sort of bad guy. He was a tough guy, very well respected in the community. He was a sharecropper, very physical labor, but because the game was rigged, they couldn't make any money sharecropping. Uh, moonshining was the big deal for whether black or white, the sharecroppers sold illegal liquor. They made it and sold it. And that was their cash crop. And Dawson Jordan lived till Michael was 14. And Michael lived with him for about the first six or seven years of his life. And so, uh, and Michael's grandfather on the other side was also a sharecropper moonshiner, but he beat the game and came to own his own land and uh, became a, a prosperous man. That was Michael's mother's father. And so um, these were very tough men and, they, they, and women, and they had to endure a lot. And, um, well, the first time I asked Michael about his great-grandfather, um, uh, you could just see that a tear, you know, formed there. It was, it's an emotional thing. And so it's okay. To, I write a lot about basketball. I, I've coached it a lot over the years. It's, it, I still write about it to stay close to my own father. But, um, we can't just consider basketball. We have to look at the whole cultural story because these players are huge cultural heroes across the globe. My Michael Jordan books in 16 languages, I think now, uh, the Kobe books in 12 or 13. I, I, I got to do an interview coming up with a Hungarian, uh, uh, news because um, the book's coming out in Hungarian. You know, just uh, I'm so some old hillbilly down here in Virginia. So it's it's um, it's unusual, but uh, I've had a lot of fun. That's excellent, Roland. Uh, well said. Really, really well, well said. Now, when you write a book about a team or about someone, of course, there's going to be reaction 
something from that team or from someone or people close to them. When the book came out, was the reaction what you expected it to be? Was it better? Was it worse? When the first, when the book first came out, how was it uh, reacted to? Uh, Blood on the Horns about the breakup? Yes, well, yes. Okay. Uh, that book uh, was big news in Chicago. The Chicago Sun-Times excerpted it for 10 straight days. All the newspaper boxes, you know, back then they used to sell newspapers out of boxes and they had the, the logo and all that stripped across the top of it all over the city. Uh, I, those guys had known me pretty well by then. They knew I was doing the book. I interviewed all of them on the record. Uh, they were fighting. They had been fighting and it had gotten worse every year. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody was mad at me. I was just sort of a writer, but also a fan. I was, I was saying, look, um, and it was complicated, but I said, look, there's no way you guys can talk this out. I asked Michael that. And he said at the end of the last dance, you know, why couldn't we all get in a room and talk it out? Well, you know, 20 some years earlier, I sat down with him and said, Michael, why can't you all just get together in a room and work this out? And he was angry then. He said, man, if you expect me to keep doing all I've got to do to have my career and win these championships and have Jerry Krause interfering with things and, and acting the way he acts, it's not going to happen. And they were all pretty angry. It was. It was sad. On the other hand, they won six championships. He drove that. You, you saw from Last Dance, and that's what Blood on the Horns was about. The, the Jason Hare, the director of Last Dance, uh, on Twitter, I, I, I don't know the guy, but he got on there and said, um, Blood on the Horns and Michael Jordan, the life were, were among the Bibles they used to make the documentary. But... Um, it it was a it was a sad story, but it was exhilarating to be there and watching all that. But um, it it's a it's a hard story too, because they probably could have won. I don't know, at least another one. I, I do think you have to stop and consider that Michael Jordan was a guy who had a family in which the father had been murdered. And I, I don't care who you are, you know, people tend to think of Michael Jordan as a superhero. And as far as real live human beings go, he probably is the closest thing we've ever seen to a superhero because he just he just could elevate himself to what seemed like superhuman levels a lot of times. And he, he drove everybody very hard, but he's very human. And, and behind all that, as sports reporters, we couldn't ask him about it because the games were going on and it was an unspoken rule that you didn't go in on those media sessions and ask him about the, all the legal stuff going on after his father's murder. And so we didn't ask about that. And so we tended just to sort of ignore it. But 
when you do these stories of and look at the whole life of a person, there's often a lot of stuff that makes what they do in basketball even more amazing. Kobe Bryant, for example, heading into the 2001 playoffs, threw his family out of his life. It was almost surgical. He towed their cars, took their cell, uh, you know, cut off their cell phones, shut down their jobs in his company, and um, it was almost surgical. He felt he had to do it. But there was a reason when the Lakers won the championship that year, the team was celebrating, and he was sitting over in a handicap stall sobbing because it's an emotional game anyway, but right. a lot of times these great players have, they're like anybody else. They have emotional, difficult family issues they, ha they have to deal with. And sometimes they've done their greatest things in the midst of tremendous personal difficulty. Absolutely. And you talk about Kobe Bryant too, even in 2003 with what happened with him as well in Colorado, having to go through the court battles back and forth, having to fly back. And even in, you alluded to 2001, winning the NBA Finals in Philadelphia. You know, that's huge, being in his hometown, everything like that. And then the following year, he goes to the All-Star Game and wins the All-Star Game MVP in Philadelphia as well. So it's just and absolutely crazy. Yes, gets and gets moved. hometown. Yes. And, you know, he wins in Philly, and he, he doesn't have any family members there. Finally, right. his uncle Chubby Cox comes in and in the championship locker room and hugs Kobe in 2001. Kobe's just crying, sobbing. And it's, uh, it, it was a very difficult thing he did. You know, they never, I mean, they had some reconciliation, but that, that's one of the things that was very hard for me, among many things, about Kobe uh, getting killed this year. Right. Uh, my book on Kobe ended, I went over to Italy to the, uh, uh, one of the teams where his father Joe played when Kobe was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the team owner, guy was still there uh, in Pistoia. And uh, the Bryants lived up in a little chalet or a nice chalet up in the mountains above Pistoia in this little mountainside village, Cerilio. And Pam Bryant, Kobe's mother, had these beautiful Christmases. And I mean, she could really decorate and everything was just, was always perfect. She was a perfectionist like Kobe. Mothers of great athletes are often perfectionists and sort of, you don't get to be that kind of great player with the footwork and the fundamentals that a, a Kobe or a Michael uh, has mm -hmm. without being a perfectionist. And, um, the owner knew about all the family difficulties when I was interviewing him in 2015. And he was talking about, oh, I would long to see the, the family, the Bryants, back up at Cerilio for Christmas at Pam's house, where everything is so beautiful and the family's all together. Right. And that was how I had ended the I, the book came out in 2016 and I had ended it with the family had, you know, a I ended sometimes with a, a, a wish or a fantasy sequence where the family had mended all their differences. Mm -hmm. 
and they had all gathered again in Chirilio for a, a, a beautiful Christmas. And Joe and Kobe are out in the driveway. They can't play one-on-one -on -one anymore, but they're talking trash and playing a game of horse. Mm. And when the accident happened, all I could think about was they never really got that that clean good moment for reconciliation and you know i've had family members that got into disputes and went to their graves they didn't mean to but you know that happens in every family you have things like that and um they're human beings they're our heroes they're human beings Absolutely, in the great in the grand scheme of things, that's all we are. Even the even the great athletes right now, they're all we're all human beings. At the end of this, go ahead, Sean. That's definitely well well said, uh, Roland. Um, Roland, when when I think of a book, can you take me and Will? Like you said, you have to do interviews after interviews, and you have to you know do homework and um, uh, research from beginning to end. How long does the process take to write a book that is 100 pages long compared to like 700 pages long? Like once that first day starts, how long is it? Well, you know, I've lived a lot of these stories. Like I said, I, I'd been talking to Kobe for years. I did a book on him earlier. Uh, with Michael, I had all those experiences in Chicago. I, I would get time with him from time to time to sit down and talk alone. Uh, the last time for that was 2008. Um, the Jordan book, after I started writing it in 2011, it, I finished it in 2014. It came out in May of 2015. It was 700 pages. It, broke down my health twice. I got totally exhausted. Uh, the Kobe Bryant book was even worse. I got so burned out and they, they, the publisher needed it on like an unbelievable one year deadline. And it was, I didn't think I'd ever write again. I was so burned out. It's taken me a couple of years. I had wanted to do the magic book instead of the Kobe book. I wanted to do the Kobe book later. But uh, I finally got my act back together and my agent told me if I didn't get my act back together, I wouldn't be able to get another deal. So I got my act back together. I actually got a two book deal. I, uh, and so this magic book, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of books on the Lakers. I, I'm, I'm in here looking at my inter interview tape, uh, tapes of all the stuff back in the 80s and not, late 80s. 80s and 90s and um and i'm interviewing people like crazy now i've done hundreds of hours of interviews with people high school coaches team high school teammates um college teammates everybody in the town the team doctor uh in lansing uh all the broadcasters and media people uh 
Dr. Charles Tucker, who was Magic's advisor for years, his agent and former agent, all these different people, all of them, and you know, people around the league, people who played against him, teammates, a lot of people. And I got another guy working with me who's doing a lot of interviews to help me get them all done. And then there are the thousands, literally thousands and thousands of newspaper articles and documents. I've, I've researched Magic's life, his family's life. His father came from Mississippi, which is one of the most violent, repressive, um, evil places for African-Americans for a long time. A lot of violence uh, over just really stupid shit. Um, North Carolina, where his mother comes from, like Michael's family, North Carolina had more Klan members than all the other Southern states combined. Um, this stuff was very real. We don't like to talk about it. Our racial history is an uncomfortable thing. Everybody, but because we can't talk about it, we just sort of move on in ignorance. We don't really understand what was done. The, all the, the, just a criminal world. Uh, I mean, there's rape, robbery, murder, uh, torture, you name it all. It, it, it was a caste system uh, violently, violently enforced. Mm -hmm. That's our history. You can go back and read it in all the old newspapers. The newspapers were part of it. They like to describe the violence. That was part of the terrorism. And, right. uh, you know, it's just, uh, you have to add it all up. I, I, and I, you know, Michael, one of the reasons I wanted to do it, Michael was divorced from his heritage. He became such a big marketing figure. They had to make him, you know, so appealing to everybody. Um, it was almost like they were pretending he didn't have a cultural history. And before when I did, I did a book on Jerry West for ESPN and my father was an old two-handed set shooter out of the West Virginia Hills. He played semi-pro ball. He, he loved basketball. And Jerry West, you know, that was his cultural identifier, Jerry West from Southern West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went and did the whole cultural story on Jerry West and on all those coal miners and, and all the different people in the hills, the people he came from. And his sad family, his sad, difficult family story. Right. And so um, there are a lot of good people from the past. They, they were perfectly good people. The idea is somehow people have all gotten much better, you know, that BS, they were perfectly good people back then. They were just treated in terrible ways. 
And so I, I, it's just my way of honoring them, connecting their lives to Michael's or Kobe's or Jerry West once again. Very interesting right there, Roland, that you bring up Jerry West and you wrote books with, about Jerry West and Kobe and Michael. Out of those three players, do you see like any similarities in, in their games at all, you know, when they played? Well, it, it, they all were the sons of perfectionist mothers. Now, their mothers were all very different. Uh, Jerry West's mother was this big old country girl. Her name was Cecile, but everybody, everybody called her Cecil, like she was somebody's uncle. And, right. you know, she was a big, awkward girl. She had a lot of anger and frustration. Um, Jerry had a lot of his mother's personality. Kobe Bryant is known as that killer assassin of a player. His dad was Jelly Bean, a happy-go-lucky, very talented player. Yep. But all of Jelly Bean's friends said, Pam Bryant, Kobe's mother, that's the assassin. That's where Kobe got that, that killer instinct, that mamba kind of instinct. And Michael's mother, her father was, a, as we said, was a very shrewd businessman who beat the sharecropping game. And their house was, they ended up living in a much bigger house than anyone else around. He, it was... Uh, he was old man Richard Peoples. And um, Michael's mother, Dolores, was a very shrewd woman. And uh, Sonny Vaccaro described her as one of the most impressive people he'd met in his life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're, we're all connected to family. We're not disconnected. We're a product of family. And so I I like to write a lot about family. It's a human thing. Absolutely. Sean? Yeah, Roland, that's um, um, a very good point there. Uh, Roland, um, is there a timetable for when the Magic Johnson book is going to be done? Like, what's the uh, process for that one? Yeah, that book's got to come out in the fall of 2021, which means, you know, I, I lost so much time with Kobe's passing. Uh, it's not that I'm any big deal. I'm a relatively unimportant person in all this. And I'm not, that's not false modesty. That's just the case. But when Kobe got killed, I, 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 I got the phone text message. And I, two minutes later, I started the first of, 43 media interviews in the next 26 hours. Not because I'm, you know, some big uh, deal or something, but because they got to have somebody to talk mm -hmm. in those times. And so I'm an author. I'd already done interviews with them when the book comes out. The publisher sets those up. So I'm in their dial list, you know. I'm, I was already there. So, um there was nobody else who could really say a lot right away, but because it's like with you, I said with you guys, I always am asking people to give me interviews. So the last thing I do is say, Oh no, I can't do an interview today. I, I try to do them all because, you know, we all start out somewhere. If you're, if you're getting into the sports media game, 
you got to start somewhere. I, I taught interviewing in college for 20 years. That's, that's the heart of everything. And, you know, there are all kinds of strategies for it, but really it's how you make your connections in the game and in doing the things. Obviously, you guys are doing this because you, you love to do it. And um, that's no different than me starting out at a weekly newspaper long before the internet. I gave up my head coaching job and my full-time teaching job to take this minimum wage gig as the sports editor at this weekly newspaper because that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I had to hustle hard to, because I already had a kid. Right. And, uh, but we all start somewhere. It's not like, we, you know, there's some people that get to walk in, uh, you know, they come right out of the Ivy League and they've been brilliant in the Ivy League and they, you know, they're going to get that top media job. And the next thing you know, they're working for ESPN or somebody, but that wasn't my life. And it's not the life of most people I know, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to do this, you got to get into it and sort of make your way often seeking and getting interviews with formers. I find formers are great. It's hard to get the stars while they're in the spotlight, but you can always find retired players, retired coaches. Those people have a lot of knowledge and they're great interviews. You got to work hard to do them because you got to research them and get, you got to get really good questions together. And that takes, you know, you got to make lists of questions and throw out the bad ones. Absolutely. We, we all have to go through this process, but that's how, you know, it's just a function of what kind of interviews you get, what kind of information you get, uh, how you're going to use that information or whether you're creating more stories or, or just the podcast, uh, technology has changed obviously. And that's a wonderful thing. Yep. It allows us to spend some time together here on a, COVID-19 evening, but, uh, but it's still the same thing. Yeah. It's still reaching out to people and learning. Uh, I, I always love doing interviews because that's how I learned. I mean, I would get people to, I'd try to get to the people who knew the truth and listen to them. You know, that was, that was my goal. Right. And, you know, through your books and through your writings, it's obviously paid off for you in a very big way, Roland. Uh, my question for you here is, I know that we're limited on time here, but we saw the Michael Jordan documentary with The Last, with, with the last Dance. You wrote your book on Kobe Bryant. Do you see a documentary coming out for Kobe in the near future? I don't think there'll be a documentary on Kobe until Vanessa's ready for it. I, you know, Hollywood's an aggressive place. People are always, and, and now that The Last Dance has been successful, um, that will uh, mean that there are already lots of documentaries being formulated. This has got all kinds of people thinking about all kinds of stuff. But uh, I have no, I, I don't know Vanessa. I, you know, there's a picture on my, I think it's my Twitter page where I'm sitting with her and Kobe in the Lakers locker room right after they've won the 2000 championship. I've been interviewing Kobe, but 
I, I don't know Vanessa. I have no idea what her feelings are. Michael said on this footage, you know, this footage was shot and, and field produced by Andy Thompson, Clay Thompson's uncle. He's a great guy, really bright guy. And I would see him all the time. Hey, has Michael signed off on that footage yet? And it went on 20 years before Michael was ready to have this thing come out. And he agreed to have the footage done. He signed off. And so we'll see something on Kobe. But nobody's going to try to do anything that she doesn't want right now. That That's not going to go. That's just the code of the game. Uh, other people, there will be documentaries, some of them. Michael, this was Michael's baby in some ways, but I think the brilliance of it, uh, Jason Hare was able to get Michael to be really pretty forthcoming about, you really got to look at his competitive ferocity. And the dude was outrageously harsh on his teammates, everybody around him, he drove everybody to the championships. And they they might have their feelings hurt, but anytime they want to go to the to their storage box and get out those championship rings, or they want to get on the phone and dial up and listen to their bank accounts, or they want to contemplate their place in history, he he carried them kicking and screaming there. Now, they were all good guys. Mm -hmm. uh, those were good people in that team. But uh, make no mistake. And the mistake Jerry Krause made, he, it's a sad story for Krause. He was a bully. Michael was a bully. Krause had probably been bullied a lot as a kid. You know, short little fat guy, uh, backup catcher on the baseball team, always wanted to be part of the club. Nobody was going to let him be part of the club. And that was his biggest problem with the Bulls. He always wanted to be around them. And those guys don't need that pressure. Plus, he's sort of a – he's a sleuth. They never knew what he was finding out about them or whatever. You know, guys like to have their privacy. And um, it just was – Krause had all this vision, and he, it worked out. But he came to think – I spent a lot of time interviewing him. He came to think it was about his vision and what he had made happen. And that's good to a point, but make no mistake. None of it, not for an instant happened without MJ. I mean, MJ drove the whole agenda. He was in everybody's grill every day. He terrorized everybody, not just on that team, but in that league. They did not want to be humiliated by MJ. Now, the bad boy Pistons, they had an answer. They were just going to beat the shit out of him. And they, I was very physical. You could see a lot of that. And I used to do a lot of work with the Pistons. I, 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 I worked a lot with the Pistons before I ever worked with the Bulls. So, uh, I, you know, Joe Dumars was one of my favorite guys in the NBA, still is, classy guy. And Isaiah, that guy's such a competitor for a little dude in the NBA, fearless, you know. Um, but Krause thought that they were going to chase those guys out of there and he was going to show the world and build another championship team. And, and 
I, when he would tell me things like that, I would go, this dude is crazy. If he thinks that you can, you know, you're lucky to have anything you get in life one time. If you start thinking it's going to happen to you all the time and that that's how things are going to be for the rest of your life, man, you got to get disabused of that notion in a hurry. I think that's how a lot of people, they, they talk about athletes making a lot of money and then losing it all. But it's not just athletes. It's anybody that comes into a lot of money, whether you win a lottery or you, or you have a big hit in business. You start thinking, oh, this is the way it's going to be the rest of the way. I, I can just live like a king. Mm, that's not how life works. Right. Whatever you get, you, you better make plans to hold on to it. Now, that doesn't mean you might not have more good fortune. But when you start thinking that good fortune is the order of the day, think again. And so there are lessons to be drawn, life lessons to be drawn from the last dance. Absolutely. Sean? All right. So basically my last question here is for, for you, uh, Roland. You look at everything right now that's set in place. Uh, you look at everything that happened with Kobe, Jordan, even your book on Jerry West, but even the people involved, the teammates that were there uh, during that last dance thing, you know, what, what was that like for, for you, not only to cover MJ, but to go out there and actually speak to some of the teammates that were involved throughout this whole process as well? I, you know, I never got into the hero thing. You can't do much if you get all goo-goo-eyed trying to talk to people. First of all, that turns them off. They don't want to. They just want to be treated. They don't want to be worshipped. They don't want. Um, and, you know, if you're a sports fan, uh, you, you start in that business. It's sort of hard. Now. I mean, I see it all the time, young reporters and people going in that. But they get over it pretty quickly if they're going to survive. Right. You, you have to be. Uh, you have to be somebody level-headed who's not into any kind of fan worship. Who um, you gotta have a cool head about you. And so, uh, if I started feeling that way, and I wasn't inclined to get a lot like that, I, I didn't play but a year of college football. It was D one, but I think that helped me a lot because you know you just don't think that way. You you're trying to, you're trying to be your own man. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so I, I think, um, just being matter of fact and routine with them, you know, um, they appreciate that, that you'll get more by treating them as a regular person. Now that doesn't mean you, um, you know, you take shortcuts or you, if you tell them you're going to meet them at 10 o'clock, you don't come at 10.05. None of their time is valuable. They, these are, and, you know, I went, I must say, I went to the NBA in a time when it was much more relaxed. You, I, you know, for example, Kobe in 97 at the All-Star game, uh, he was waiting in the locker room to go for the slam dunk contest. 
I'm a media credential. So I just went back there, you know, I'd gotten to know him some. And so I just went back there. It was just me and Kobe in the locker room. I talked to him for 30 minutes before he went out there and tore up that slam dunk contest and got all wild and fired up. And we had this great conversation I recorded. I couldn't anymore get near that locker room today. The, they have the thing so managed. First of all, they have so much media. They've got all the international media. I, I was very lucky to come along at a time. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to go cover the NBA. I wanted to cover something at the highest level. College basketball was a cult back then. It was, it was actually harder sometimes to cover ACC games than NBA games. And the NBA was media friendly back when I started with it in the 80s. You know, the media relations directors uh, were eager to see, uh, eager to have you writing about their teams and stuff. And they were, they weren't all friendly, but pretty much they were, they were good folks. Now they're gatekeepers, you know, they're, they're trying to weed out, keep people away a lot of times. And, uh, you know, it's become a, a much bigger corporate thing. But that's, you know, there are plenty of people today working in and around pro sports who are able to um, get to know people and get to write about them on a human level. Gotcha. Roland, how do the people follow you on social media? You know, I, I got a Twitter account at Lazenby, just at and my last name. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a, uh, what's the photo? Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. yeah, I got that, but I'm too idiotic to get all that work. And, you know, uh, I'll go in there and like stuff, but I don't even know how to post stuff on that thing. I've got Facebook. Uh, I, and I enjoy that stuff. You know, I... Uh, I'll get on there and rant about certain things uh, on, uh, you know, politics or uh, I, I'm upset right now with how the NBA is, what they've done with all the rules. And so I'll get on there and do stuff like that, but I'm no wizard. Mm. I, I'm married to a wizard. She can help me with some of that stuff when it doesn't, I mean, she gets bored with a lot of the stuff I do, but she, she helps me a lot, but you know, I just try to write. I just try to have conversations with people and learn from them. And I try to explain um, important people. Right. Kobe, Michael, obviously they're important to millions and millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty cool thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a pretty cool thing. You know, you, you got to write books on them too. So yeah, no, that, know, that's, that's awesome. I'll, I'll tell you this. They all know who Michael is. They don't give a shit who I am. I, even the people buy the books. I'm some dude with, you know, a wacky last name Lazenby, but it's all Michael, man. I, it's like, I, I don't, I, I'm not ascribing this to, to some big thing on my part. And I'm a, I'm a bulldog. I want to get all the answers, but it's, it's all Mike. Right. And even, you know, just to give you at least a little bit of credit, 
at least the guys that produced the documentary said that your book was a Bible. Oh, no, I, I didn't. Like I said, it about kill me. Right. Uh, uh, no, I, I believe me, I, I did the work. Right. Um, but like I said, I'm not the one selling the books. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just saying, I, I learned from Jerry Krause very quickly. You, if you start thinking it's about you, yeah, you, you're missing the point. Mm. It's about the guy who thrilled the world and made the world want to know about him. And that's all it's about. It's not about anything else. I'm very pleased you guys are talking to me, but it's not like the world's beating down my door. Now, Mike, the world will beat down his door as long as he's alive, as long as he'll, you know, he he's had that happen so much. He really just wants to be left alone most of the time. And I don't blame him. But uh, it's about him. Absolutely. Roland, thank you for sacrificing some time to come talk about. Uh, no sacrifice, man. I enjoyed it. You guys are thank great. I, I look, I look so forward much. to checking out your podcast down the road. And I want to wish you the best on it. The, uh, I, I, I will tell you, I had a student. And I'll leave you with this. I had a student. She was working on a story in one of my classes, I was teaching college journalism. And I think she got a B for the semester. And she came back and she wasn't worried about the grade. She just wanted to keep working on the story to get it right. She met with me a couple of times, got the story published. A week later, she's killing a car wreck. And I had to speak at her memorial service. And uh I, I told her mother at that service, I'm going to speak about her to every class I ever teach. And my message to all my students was that story was her life. That story was her career. Nobody, none of us, not me, not you, not Kobe Bryant. We don't know how much time we got on this earth, but whatever we do, we better do like that young lady did and try to to do our very best because whatever we get is what we get. And Kobe was that guy, man. You know, Jerry Sloan says, told me once, it's a simple game if you lay your heart on a floor every night. Kobe laid his heart on the floor all the time. You guys take care. Thank you, Roland. Thank you for coming on. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Yep. That was the one and only Roland Lazenby. A great interview, Sean. What, what did you think about that? It was awesome, man. And, you know, and it's always refreshing and entertaining to hear someone's point of view and someone's vantage point of someone that was there and that got to see it and witness it firsthand. It's always great to talk to people like that. Roland has written some very good books, so it was an awesome uh I feel the same way when I talk to people. I, I, and that's what I'm always trying to do is talk to somebody who was there. I, I, I'm writing about Magic Johnson. I got to find those guys that were on the court. He revolutionized basketball. They said he made his teammates better. He made his coaches better. And so he revolutionized the game. I want to find every point along the way because he changed the game. They didn't let big men handle the ball. And he just, it was his force of his will. It wasn't right. anything else. And so I love uh, finding people who were there and learning from. I've got to run. I'm exhausted. See Go ahead.
Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for I the time, Roland. Guys, all night. I promise you, I could. But I got to roll. Go ahead. Go for it, Roland. We thank you so much. You too. I appreciate you. Talk to you soon, bud. You're always welcome back on anytime. Well, you know, um, give me a little while, and I'm happy. You know, you can tell I like to run my mouth. So. <laughs> And I love basketball, so yep, we always do makes me feel close to my old man. So Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to X out of this if I can figure out how to do it. <laughs> Go ahead. We'll talk to you soon, Roland. Thank you. Always appreciate it. Yeah, I know. Let me know when you post this, and I'll be sure to share it. Too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Roland. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yep. Thank you. That was the one and only Roland Lazenby. Sean, great episode. Your final thoughts on this? Yeah, well, um, awesome job by you. Um, awesome job by uh, Roland. I'm definitely looking forward to catching up on some of his books and uh, um, you know, and you know, just having just getting the first hand view. You know, it's uh, someone that was there. It's always, you know, it's it's always fun to hear good to hear like you know like we get fans point of view they're they're behind the scenes Roland wasn't only behind the scenes he was up close and personal it's like he said when they won when the Lakers won a 2000 uh, championship it's Vanessa the kids Kobe and him he was next to Kobe during that time so yep all refreshing to hear of people that's close to athletes absolutely and you know you guys could go out and purchase showboat and you guys go out and purchase Michael Jordan, The Life, wherever you find your books, whether it be Barnes & Noble, Amazon, you read your books on the phone. Really, really a great interview. And really, they're long, they're long books, but they're long for a reason. And you just heard the man. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. The man that wrote them, Roland Lazenby, is truly a gem. All right. On that note, for everybody here, from On The Board Sports, for my co-host, Sean Thomas, and for our special guest, Rowan Lazenby, I am your host, William Trucci, logging out. We'll talk to you guys soon. Peace out, and stay safe out there, everybody.